Um, The first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. And you can find it on page 690 in the Old Testament section of the Bible. The Song of the Vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is found on page 1083. John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. The vine and the branches. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord.
All of us, I'm sure, are aware of the world events that are taking place at the moment, be it in Israel and Palestine itself, be it in the Ukraine with Russian presidents speaking very boldly and Europe trying to speak even louder and more boldly. We're now in the UK, as you will gather this morning, under a severe terror threat. There were 1,400 children exploited and abused in Rotherham. Who knows where else? Journalists are beheaded for seeking to report truth, for being American and for being Christian. At times, it can look as if the world is simply falling apart. The foundations shake and there can be a great sense of fear in the air. And the psalmist would cry, where is your God? We meet our God today in his word with his disciples, preparing them for his leaving, preparing them for when their world will just fall apart and the very foundation upon which they've been traveling and building up over the last three years will be cruelly taken away from them. And so we come to this passage today in the context of being in the world, seeking wisdom, seeking Christ, seeking his way of looking at the world he himself came into as he himself was about to face all the world could hurl upon him, the sin of us all, both from the past and the future, as he bore our sins and carried our punishments, for he was afflicted. And in this context, he says to his disciples, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. We reach the end of our I Am series, the I Am sayings from Jesus. And after sharing the Passover meal with the disciples, Jesus spoke to them about being the way, the truth, and the life that Tom spoke well of last week. They then left the place where they'd eaten the meal, and they set off together for the Garden of Gethsemane. Later they would not be together, but at this point they are together. And Jesus takes every opportunity to keep on revealing to them who he is and what he's about. They might have walked through some of Jerusalem. And in the time of Jesus, there was a great golden vine hung above the entrance of the temple where the clusters of grapes would have been as tall as me. Huge vine of gold growing over the temple. And Jesus' teaching in John 15 may have been given in the temple courtyard with this great golden vine glinting in the Passover moon. The disciples themselves looking at the vine would have been familiar of the Old Testament teaching as we heard read from Isaiah, where Isaiah sings a song about the Lord's vineyard in chapter five. But this vineyard, it seems, only yields bad fruit. We're aware of bad fruit at the moment. It ends with a cry of anguish. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. A very current picture of Israel at the moment. So with the scene set, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, it was more a theological comparison he was making than a horticultural one. And it was both an enormous claim, and he was actually trying to be very encouraging. I am the true vine, he says. 
because all God's chosen people had failed to do and to be over all the centuries that God had been dealing with them, Jesus himself would now do and he would be, because he is the true vine. So it was not to be a failure after all. There was a true, genuine, authentic vine growing, and it was the man beside them in front of the temple at that moment. And Jesus would produce all that God required of humanity. So it's an enormous claim that he's making, enormous and a deeply encouraging one, that there is hope. There is hope breaking through the encircling clouds and doom of destructions. You see, God didn't suddenly just spring on, spring Jesus on the human race. He came at a particular moment, a particular point in God's dealings with us. And he fitted exactly onto all that God had done up until that time with the children of Israel. Up until that time, the people God had chosen to work with had failed, as Isaiah noted. Not only had they failed to produce the harvest of righteousness which God required in the past, they were now failing to recognize the true vine. They failed to see Jesus, his son. And that's what verse two means in John 15. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. It's a situation of the Jews at the time of Jesus. The religious people who assumed that they were part of what God was doing, that they were in the vine, and who were discovered that they were actually not in the vine because they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. We must remain true to Christ in our Christianity for religious people can easily do away with Christ, his teachings. But then there is the vine growing process that we see in verses one to eight. And first we notice that there is somebody who is the gardener. There is a gardener. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that, that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. God the Father is undertaking to care for the true vine. He's the one who supervises, it seems from what Jesus is saying, the health of the branches of the vine. It was his loving will to send his son to earth. Why? That we might become part of the vine. That we might be in relationship with him again. God the Father, the gardener, longs for us more than we long for ourselves, more than we long for him, actually. He cares about us more than we actually care about him. I think all that is quite astonishing, really, that God would send his son, that he would continue to care for the vines, that he would care about me. I know how much Simon Holland loves Simon Holland, and the thought is astonishing that there is someone other than Anne who loves me more than I love myself. That is what the gardener does. He tends the true vine. He tends the branches with love. And secondly, with a new picture, Liz, there are pruned branches. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will even be more fruitful. 
You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Verse 3. I'm going to assume this morning that you all listen to Gardener's World and you are all au fait with pruning. If you're not, do speak to Ruth after. <laughs> On the spring cleaning day, Ruth appeared with secateurs. Outside the cafe door on the right, there is a rose. Ruth then proceeded to cut the rose down to the very base, almost to the ground, so there was actually really nothing left at all. I was doubtful. I was doubtful it would ever grow again. Go, go and look at it now and see. So to me, as I discovered from Ruth, is pruning is what I would call a painful process for a loving purpose. Cutting back a living organism in order that it may grow more vigorously. And notice that this is something that the word of God does to us. That's the point here of verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Pruning in verse 2 and being made clean in verse 3 are the same word in Greek. And the disciples have been listening They've been responding to the teaching that Jesus has given them, and it's gone to work inside of them. It has brought them to life. And in fact, spiritual life depends upon the word of God, just as physical life depends upon food. And that's exactly how Jesus expressed it to Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In other words, if you are sustained physically by the Sunday lunch you're all going to eat later hopefully, so you and I are sustained spiritually by the very word of God. Do we think we can live without them, his words? Then if we do, we are wiser than Jesus. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out after the mouth of God. And as God's words bring spiritual life to us, so it also maintains, it nourishes, and it cultivates life in us. All scripture is God-breathed, we're told, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in right ways. We need God's word. We need scripture. And when I arrived on retreat in the Brecon Beacons a few weeks ago, I sat on the stone seat, as I do. There's a stone seat. It's not a proper stone seat. It's a seat that is stone, because you sit on it. But it, it sort of... It sort of I can't explain it. It's sort of beveled. There's a chair in it as if it's like a huge stone seat. Anyway, I'm on this stone seat, okay. <laughs> and there is nothing there, really. Nothing. There's only a hut and this stone seat and the mountains. And so I come there and I say, hello, God. And I sit with God. And then God speaks. And he told me to go and read a specific book in his word because he had something to say to me through it. And that's how, over the retreat, he pruned me by his word. As it taught me, as it rebuked me, corrected me, as it trained me, as it realigned me into his way, as Tom powerfully spoke of last week. And therefore, it isn't any surprise that many of us find it hard to read our Bibles. We find it hard to open them. And I'm going to work on the assumption that everyone in this building, to some extent, does find it hard to read the Bible. If it isn't you, then go to sleep now. But I think it's most of us. Why? 
Why? Because I don't suppose the rose bush, when it saw Ruth approaching with her secateurs at the ready, giggled with glee and chortled with delight at the prospect of what she was about to do. So nor do I enjoy the prospect of sometimes being taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained. And I dare to think you don't either sometimes. And sometimes it becomes so hard we don't actually read God's word. We don't believe it. And if that is what is going to happen to me when I open the Bible, I'd better open it with great care. And perhaps I ought to take the sort of deep breath before I read the Bible that I take before sitting in the dentist's chair. But for some who find reading the Bible easier, who live by a set routine, perhaps we better be quite sure we're really listening to God's word, the work that he wants to do within us through his word. And sometimes the very routine of just doing it predisposes me to think that I already know what God is going to say to me. I have my quiet time. I know exactly what I'm going to read or what I'm going to hear because I've set it out and it's all in notes and it's all great. If I'm not careful, I may still be silencing God's voice unless I'm prepared for him to say something that can be very surprising, unexpected, and even disturbing. And we don't enjoy being disturbed really in Bath. If our Bible reading is not causing us some discomfort, then maybe it's not the living God we're encountering. But if it is pruning our lives, really pruning, then we know God is at work. For he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. This is the gardener, remember. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you remain in me and my words, my words remain in you, we need the words to remain in us. Many of you may have seen the interview with James Foley's parents with Jon Snow on Channel 4. We're just going to see a little clip of it now. James Foley, who is the journalist who was executed, um, and we're just going to see a little bit, I hope, if it'll come up. I don't know if it will, Liz. Here we go. Only a little bit, don't worry. This is his parents. You just need sound, sorry. John and Diane, I'm bound to be informed in part by this amazing letter that, that eventually, one way or another, reached you from James. He says in this, uh, in this letter to you, stay strong. Are you managing? Well, our strength is in the Lord. God is our strength, as it was for Jim. And the prayers of the world and um, our community have, are strengthening us and sustaining us. John, his, his life and his, uh, his uh, capture and his torture were, are, are challenging us to, to um, be, be as strong as he was and to try to carry on all the things that he wanted to accomplish. Um, so we really, we really don't feel we can quit or give up or feel sorry for ourselves or 
any of those ne negative emotions because they weren't Jim. Jim brought a light to that very dark place and his life brought a light. I mean, he went to Syria and throughout the Middle East and all the other conflict zones to bear witness to the suffering in those areas so that um, the world would know and some good could come out of it. Um, so Jim brought that light, that light of the freedom of the press so that these atrocities and suffering wouldn't be hidden and Jim challenges us, as John said, to continue to bring that light to the world through his legacy. His, his, his orientation, I think, was to humanize the human struggle. And I think um, he, he became part of that struggle as well as a re recorder of it. When you talk about light, it's in such a contrast to the appalling darkness of this act and of what else is going on for all those people who live in that region. And I'm just wondering, I mean, you are clearly sustained by your faith, by a belief in God. And yet the forces against which he had to struggle, Jim had to struggle, also in some macabre way believed they too had something to do with God. How do you manage, how do you make out all that? Well, I, John, I think that's a very complicated question and not one that we're equipped to answer or really even discuss at this point in time. Uh, our faith tells us to go on and to try to love as much as we possibly can and uh, forgive when we can. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not um, equipped to judge others, or, nor do I want to. Um, I just want Jim's life to... I mean, Jim's death not to be in vain and his life to mean something, particularly to, in the way of helping others. Um, that was his orientation, that's what I want our orientation to be, and that's what I think our God wants us to do. We believe in a very merciful, compassionate, loving God, and Jim did. And um, the more suffering Jim saw, the larger his heart seemed to grow. We really didn't have any idea how many hearts he had touched all over the world. We had no idea. But the outpouring of love and um, prayers um, throughout these two years and so much now, many from the UK, and we thank all the people of the world for, for their, support. their support and prayers. I mean, you, you, you were called by the Pope, and it seems very much to have touched him. That's true. What did he, 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 what did he say to you? And, uh, uh, well, he, he was grieving with us. He, uh, as he spoke to us, was also going through his own grief. His uh, beloved nephew had been involved in a car accident. His wife had been killed. Two of his children had been killed. And he himself, the ne nephew, was in very critical condition. So in the midst of the post-grief, he wanted to share his uh, sorrow with us and, and let us know that he was praying for us personally. And so we were deeply gratified with that, uh, that acknowledgement and his concern for us. And it further, further um, uh, it, made it, it made it even more clear how, how much Jim's death had affected the world community and how awful um, 
the world is feeling about the situation that, that uh, brought that to fruition. But and it reminds me of, of Jim in that this morning we got a beautiful letter from the most recently released hostage from Denmark, Daniel. And he just said that in the midst of the suffering in their imprisonment, that Jim brought light. He, he hugged and he um, tried to console, help console the others. Um, joked, laughed. Joked. They played games out of nothing. And they just tried to keep some joy and humanity in this situation. In that awful dark place. Um, he was a light there. And we're so grateful for that. Thank you, Liz. The, the trouble is trying to balance that with the awful. Thank you. Jim's parents seeking to remain true to their faith in through the most horrific circumstance of their son dying, holding out their belief, and it goes on and deepens, as it were. Uh, we don't have time for that. But we have time to hear that in our own lives, which we sometimes struggle with, that they have held on to the truth that they have in Christ. And this is what remain in me means. This is what it means. And Jesus is saying this before he goes to the cross before he is executed. Remain in me, abide in me. And when we are disturbed by the world, when bad things happen to God's people, here we are truly tested in whether we choose to remain. What would we do if we're gonna be persecuted? If we ourselves found that in, a, in that place? I'm not sure what I would do if my family were going to be hurt in any way. Would I remain? And so I lean fully on the word of Christ. I lean on the word that dwells richly within me. And it's why it's so important to remain, to take in his word, even when we find it hard. But in the world we live in, as the disciples would soon discover, the world is a hard place to live without Christ. How do we abide? We abide, yes, through eating on his word, but we also have to eat on pizza too. What do I mean by this? Next picture. God has a share, it seems, in the religious person's life. There is work, there is fun, there is people. And we also almost do a pizza slice of God that we give God a part of our life. Then you come to church, or possibly somewhere else, or you listen to somebody on YouTube or whatever, or you go and you talk to a friend, and you suddenly realize God's got a bit bigger, a bit you know, more important to you, and you want to give a bit more. So you then increase a little bit more time you reduce perhaps time with people or work or fun and you make more time for God. And that's how some people see that God gets a bigger share of the pizza of a person's life. Now, I don't know if either of these would represent your life, but neither of them, neither of them portray the Christian life and what we mean about remain in me. The Christian life would have to be represented like this. Thank you, Liz. It's not a part of us we offer to God. It is being indwelt by the very Spirit of God. Christ living in us and living through us in every part, in every area of our lives. Every part of me is not me any longer. It is him. And so this bearing much fruit referred to in verse 5 and verse 8 is the normal Christian life. The Bible doesn't know anything of super saints, the sort of highly spiritual ones who get involved, 
10 converts before breakfast kind of people. It is the normal Christian life. It is Christ living in us and bringing glory to the Father through us. And it will happen as our characters are changed, changed into what God needs them to be in his world. And as God works through us to do the things he wants to do in his world, we find out it's all about remaining close to Jesus in a world that seems to be moving further away from him. It's about remaining in him and letting him remain in us, even when it gets tough, even when we have people coming and doubtful about their faith in God. You can tend to think of Christian service as something that you go and do for Jesus. So you report back at the end of the day like an SAS mission, target achieved, mission accomplished. Or if it's been a bad day, there was lots of enemy fire today, had to abort. There's a sort of report back on what you've done and how it's been. But it's not about grafting. It's about being grafted. Grafted into the vine. Grafted into Christ. Because the Christian life is actually from the inside out. We don't just do things for him and report back to him. It's not about that. It's about living in Christ. It's about letting him live in you. And only in that way can we make sense of the two verses which follow, verses 7 and 8. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Because we're so centered in God. We know what God would be praying for. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus, on the night before he died with his disciples, was saying to them, God is the gardener. He makes the vine grow. And it grows in and through me. As I remain in the Father and his words remain in me, his words remain in me. And the challenge for you and I today is, will we remain? Will we remain and let it grow and make a difference to a world falling about, falling apart about us, needing the crucified love of God to make whole what is broken? And as you come forward for communion with the ancient, ancient words, give thanks not just for James Foley's parents, but for those down the ages who have remained faithful to Christ. Some of you are here now. And as you hold out your hands, graft yourself again. Graft yourself again into the true vine that you and I may be fruitful, not to our glory, but to the glory of God. I am the true vine, Jesus says. Remain in me. Remain in me. Let's stand to sing.